0: the deal party peel pull. Uh <laughs> did you just have a stroke? No, I was trying to make a run, but it didn't go so good. Anyway, we've got uh, we've got a little intruder tonight, a little hairy bean. <laughs> no, it's a dog <laughs> <laughs> it's a dog. And she'll be joining us because our dog sitter is unavailable. Yep. She is what's that word when you say it's like a fancy word for not around indisposed yeah Yeah. up top high five so yeah she's indisposed and
1: is this gonna start the theory that we're a gay couple we we have a dog together
0: i hope so i hope so it's not a theory it's practice
1: that's that's why flex left the podcast
0: that is why she left the betrayal to end all betrayals i was banging flex but then i reached around and banged the best but so that's that happened uh we also, so we, we've had, we had a bit of a tech setback where my computer got bedazzled and frazzled when I tried to update it and uh, took some time to get back online, but now we're here and BDMFT should have already posted by the time you guys hear this and we'll be back to a regular scheduled program, although we say that about every four episodes now and, Listen, then, and we get delayed again i've got a baby I've i'm also a d- banging a dude yeah i've got a dog
1: who's banging a baby and my cat died yeah I did we even changed. introduce the podcast
0: welcome to motel hell welcome to motel hell it's uh it's hot and we don't smoke pot great <laughs> great you're, you're crushing it thank you thank you So tonight we are going to be covering the history of the British Abba.
1: We're covering Abba
0: Rappa. No, Parappa the Rappa. I think Parappa the Rappa. Yes, we're going to be covering the entire history of Parappa the Rappa, which is going to take some time because basically we're going to need to explain the history of rhythm action games in all their forms since Sumerian times. So it will take about ten episodes to get to Parappa the Rappa. Which, for those who don't know it, is one of the best PlayStation rhythm action games. And one of the best rhythm action games of all time. Catchy music, nice visual design. I'm surprised you were able to say that with a straight face. Thank you. Well, Um, it is true.
1: Just think of this as the hardcore history of Parappa the Rapper. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you don't just hear about what happened with Parappa the Rapper. What the rise looked like. And, of course, the inevitable fall and decline. But you get the flavor you get the rappa you get the po rappa you get all of the players that put those two together and 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 we take a look at the children so
1: i just realized something yeah that unless you name this episode episode one of parappa the Rappa, (laughs) everyone's already gonna know this is a terrible joke
0: yeah that's true but i can't do that because then people coming for parappa the Rappa info and hardcore history like insight will be super disappointed
1: Anyway, since we keep getting off topic tonight already. Yeah, we're. Co- I am Ben the Beardo. Oh, okay. And you are. Dick the Fetty. That's true. Now, Dick Fetty, what are we covering tonight?
0: We are covering the first half of the history of the extreme British heavy metal band Carcass. And for those who don't know anything about Carcass, then you should have listened to our last episode because I talk about their second and third album. In some detail.
1: Did you? So, yeah. Was I there?
0: Yeah. Oh. So, they were in my disco box. I'm going to try not to be too repetitive about my comments, but we're, we're coming in with a much broader scope as we're covering the entire band and the history of the albums, the history of the band itself, all of the rest, and uh, we're going to be getting through the origins to uh, Necroticism, Descanting, The Insalubrious, well actually Tools of the Trade today, and then next time we're going to cover from heartwork to swan song to the band's breakup and then their reformation and then the later released surgical steel so i don't want to say that one episode's going to be about the good era of carcass and the other one's about the less good era it feels like you're about to say that but some people might say that that's what that's what's happening but it's 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 a natural split and i think hopefully it'll be interesting you know again we we talked about it before in the last episode but we're not, you know, we don't just do true crime. We don't just do aliens or any one thing. And I've been listening to a insane amount of carcass lately, so it just felt like a good fit for the show.
1: Yeah, and if you only want us to do that shit, then fucking pay us. If not, get off our back. It's our podcast.
0: But first, movie review. Mama, movie review. Movie review. So tonight we watched a new film in an effort to keep things interesting here. Motel Hell, Uh, we watched the 1986 uh, robot vehicle Chopping Mall.
1: That's true, we did.
0: We did. By Jim Wynorski, the famous Wynorski brother. Well, he didn't have any other brothers. The famous only child, Jim Wynorski. (laughs) I don't know if either of those things are true. Uh, But yeah. I mean, he did make a movie. Truth. So tell me more, Ben. Tell me about Chopping Mall. Well, so the sole reason that we... Wow, he directed 103 movies.
1: Should I wait? Are you ready?
0: I guess. I don't think I'll ever be ready for information like that. Cheerleader Massacre. Okay, yeah, go. just keep going.
1: We almost watched that movie once. No, anyway.
0: this, this was a 90s version. Remake. Or was that Sleepover Cobra Massacre? Gator? That was Slumber Party Massacre, and we did watch it. Was it good? Mm. Was I drunk? No.
1: Anyway... The, the sole reason that we watch this movie is because Barbara Crampton was in it, and she usually shows her boobies, and they're real good. And on top of it, she's a very good horror actress in some of our very beloved movies. She was in a bunch of Stuart Gordon films. She was in Puppet Master the Littlest Reich, which I showed to Dick Fetty recently, and he very much enjoyed it. True. So, we finally decide to pull the trigger on this one, so to speak, Partially because she was in it. Partially because it was something neither of us had seen, and we do tend to fall into movies that we've seen. But the movie takes place in a shopping shopping mall.
0: Oh, shopping mall. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, there's very little chopping. There's
0: actually no chopping.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah, no. No chopping. Not once. Not even... I don't think there's even a bladed object in the
0: whole movie. Well, the little cross thing they shoot.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. So... The movie is about this mall and they 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 buy these robots to protect the mall at night and some young people who work there decide to party and fuck in the closed mall which to me sounds like a great idea someone who used to have the keys to where they work always thought it would be cool but I don't party and I'm married so I don't fuck either just kidding
0: but it wasn't a furniture store which was pretty rad, where they had bedroom furniture. I mean, it's the perfect place to fuck, you It know? is, yeah, no. Haven't you always wanted to fuck in an Ikea? There was three different couples that were all... No, four different, right? Because it was the dude and his wife, and then it was the dude in No Chin, and then it was the dude in Barbara Crampton, and then it was the dude and the girl that got her head exploded. Yes. So four couples are bang a like orangutans, and, uh... And then, uh, Natch, uh, lightning strikes the mall, makes the robots crazy, and then it's just off to the races from there.
1: Yeah, I, I could have used a little bit more... Chopping? Yeah, chopping. Just different types of kills. Yeah. The kills they did were very good.
0: No, they weren't. They Some were, of them were. They were okay. The I mean explosion was cool. Yeah, but there was two different electrocution deaths that were stupid, and... But there was a woman on fire that was definitely a dude, but was that was rad. That was real rad. So, yeah, I know. Movies with people on fire always get an extra point for me. But, um, I mean, it was like, to call it a B movie is generous. It was definitely more of like a C movie. I mean, the writing was, it. it functioned to move things along, and it didn't have those insane sort of nonsensicalness of, like, an Italian shit film of the same, like, time period and quality, so I could appreciate it that there was some continuity and and everything and, like, the decisions that were made generally weren't, like, too crazy and outlandish, but it was more of just, like, it was ultra-low budget. The robots looked and sounded ridiculous. They had these little arms that half the time they were, like, had lifted up to sort of signal that they were raising the roof, I think. Yes, I agree with that. And, uh, (laughs) little clampy hands. They're, like, Like, those, like, uh, long extended claw things you can get from, like, a toy store that are, like... You know, they're called, like, the claw, but they were, like, smaller than that and goofier. And they can punch a hole in your throat. Yeah, they can punch a hole in your throat. And, uh... A couple of them got lit on fire, and... I don't know. It was... I was very tired because we ate a lot of dinner, and... So I was just sort of, like, sitting there half awake. So sleepy, but need to watch robots kill. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd give it, like... Compared to Hardware, so Hardware was better in some ways, but also way worse in others. So, like,
1: bottom tier is Hardware, top tier is, like, Terminator 1? <laughs> yeah. As
0: That's, fo- yeah, as far as killer robots go. So, it's between those two, but definitely way closer to Hardware. It's, like, a step above. I mean, Hardware had atmosphere and a good soundtrack, but was just, like, just couldn't help itself. Like, it just kept going. Like, it tried way too hard to be good, Whereas this movie was just trash all the way through, and it... It did have six and a half boobs. It did have six and a half boobs, and in that way, yeah, so it's a better film, and uh, I would give it... I'm not giving it six and a half stars, but I'd give it five and a half. I agree with five. Yeah, five and a half, five.
1: Uh, I'd stick with five. I'd probably watch it again for, like, a goof or a a lark, if you will, but...
0: Goofy lark. It's not
1: something I'm going to go on Amazon tonight and buy the fucking Blu-ray for. It wasn't, like... Let's say Death Spa. We yeah. talked about this movie while we were watching it. Death Spa is... It, it holds a special place in my heart. But Death Spa had way better kills, a way larger variety of kills.
0: Also had a ton of boobage. Yeah, more boobs. And was more ridiculous all at the same time. Yeah.
1: And the story made no
0: sense. Yeah, Absolutely none. Yeah, it it was... It didn't just appear that... The idea for Death's Ball was conceived in the middle of a coke bender. It appeared as if they came up with the idea, didn't stop doing coke, shot the movie, continued to do coke while they shot it, and then did the rest of the coke and filmed the after-party. And that's actually the movie. And that movie rules. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But this this seems in that, like, 80s vein where they're trying to, like, you know, do, like, technology horror and shit. And it just... It,
0: yeah, it's so ridiculous and like sort of corny that it feels almost satirical at times, but I don't think that they were that smart. Yeah. You know, but it, it doesn't feel like anybody was taking it too seriously. Barbara Crampton does a pretty good job generally, though, in it.
1: No, oh, she's great. Yeah. It, it's it's just like. Um, Jeffrey Coombs. Just like Jeffrey Coombs. Like when we watch. Makes any film better? Yeah. Lurking Fear. Like when we watch Lurking Fear. His parts in that
0: phenomenal everything else not so much well he was yeah and he's pretty good he's better in that than she was in this like I felt like her whole I have to get out of the air vents and see what the boys are up to and I hope they're not hurt thing was a little that was a little less believable than Jeffrey Coombs being an alcoholic
1: yeah well to be fair a lot of the movies that we have seen her in she's much more aware like in From Beyond she's a fucking psychiatrist or psychologist I can't remember which and then in, she's super hot. Yeah, well, I mean, she showed us full bush, and yeah, she showed us full
0: boobs in this.
1: Yeah, well, she she showed us full reanimator. In reanimator, she showed us full everything. Are you having the stroke? I'm having a little bit of a stroke. I'm very tired, but we're gonna we're gonna keep on chugging along. It's gonna yeah. be a great episode, sir. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I think I think that sums it up, and I don't know that we need to say more about Chopping Mall.
1: Yeah, no, it's free on Amazon, so if you've got Amazon, it's definitely worth a checkout, especially if, you know,
0: you're with a couple people or if you smoke pot. For sure. My friend Daffy picked this up at AKA Records back when that was still a record store in Philly. She either got it on, like, a cheap DVD or... A cheap uh vhs and that's like the way to go like this is the kind of movie you buy secondhand at a record store or something for a dollar it's schlock yeah
1: it's straight schlock yeah and if dummy thick robots get you horny this movie got
0: some dummy I mean, thick robots yeah we didn't even talk about the rope well i guess we did a little but they they dumb yeah but and they, they thick. thick. yeah so truth like we said tonight we are covering the british extreme heavy metal band carcass First, I want to acknowledge my sources, which primarily were the Pathologist Report sort of pseudo-documentaries, pseudo-long-form interviews with the band that was released in multiple parts in 2008. So, Earache Records, who's released, I guess, basically everything that they've done, has uh, reissued their albums from time uh, to time, and... In 2008 they did double CD well, CD DVD reissues of all the albums which each DVD contained a part of this overall documentary in which they talked about the stuff as it related to that and I watched all of the documentaries stitched together or all like the video clips stitched together so you had to uh, buy
1: all the CDs to get the full documentary so No I went on YouTube but no, yes that, yeah It yeah. was like those old Marvel toys where you got like a piece of the other toy
0: Yeah and, i mean it, it actually to me was less abhorrent because it makes sense to get a piece of the documentary that's just about the album you're listening to oh okay and it's like but they were they were reissues with that were remastered and all the rest and so they you know they are always trying to push that stuff um but it's really well done it's cobbled from numerous interviews with some of the band members by themselves and some of the band members together. There's like one of the, most of them they are sitting in pubs, having beers and whatever. And one of them, like Jeff Walker's operating the microphone as well as like answering the questions. And so like, but there's also an interviewer. And so they're like cutting to him, like holding the boom stick <laughs> and like, you know, uh, over Bill Steer and Ken Owen and all the rest. And, uh, so it's it's I highly recommend it. Check it out on YouTube. It's really sweet because they've got clips from their music videos and they've got a lot of old live footage, which is really cool. And the kind of stuff where I wouldn't want to watch an hour of it, but I don't mind seeing it for three or four minutes to give sort of context to what they were doing at the time. Uh, the other main source was the February 2019 issue of Decibel in which they added um, Symphonies of Sickness to the Decibel Hall of Fame for heavy metal albums. I tried to get a copy of the old one they did from, I think it was like 2009 or 8, where they inducted Necroticism is I think, the fourth album ever on the list. But that issue is not even available as like a back PDF. So I haven't been able to get my hands on that. If I do, I might do a supplemental, a little bit of extra info between now and the next time. But
1: Bonus episode.
0: No, just, just a, maybe a couple more minutes at the beginning of the next one t- to talk about Necroticism, but we'll see. So... So I think I talked a little bit about this in the previous BDMFT. I thought we could go into it again as far as personal experience with the band. So for me, Carcass were uh, one of the first heavy metal bands I heard about. I don't really know. Well, I do. Actually, I take it back. So I was in high school. I had a one of my uh, close friends, his older brother, was into metal before us. And we were all into Corn and all that new metal type stuff, but he got into like real heavy metal. Yeah, I'll admit it. When I was twelve, thirteen. You were wearing a uh, New York Yankees red cap. No, but I had a sick ass fucking Follow the Leader Corn like double extra large with the Seth MacFarlane like drawings from that album. Yeah, it was awesome, dude. They had the girl like skipping, doing hopscotch at like the end of a huge.
1: Seth MacFarlane.
0: Yeah, he did the artwork for that album. Did he? Yeah, and I was huge into Spawn. Are you serious? It was, like, the coolest thing for an 11-year-old, so... Seth MacFarlane. Yeah.
1: Not Todd, Todd McFarlane.
0: MacFarlane. Ah, yes.
1: One created family guy.
0: Yeah, well, that would have been fun, too, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was like, I was like, I know the cover of that album. I don't even know if Seth MacFarlane can draw. Yeah,
0: no, I'm pretty sure it can't. Anyways, yes, Todd MacFarlane. <laughs> I'll just go back and edit all this. Todd MacFarlane. Perfect, now I have a sam- sample source. Created the artwork. And why are we talking about Fall the Leader? <laughs> oh, so. Uh, yeah, anyway. Long story long, I wound up buying this CD from Best Buy or Tower Records or The Wall or whatever CD stores existed at the time called Choosing Death, which was a compilation CD that went with a book that was supposedly gave the history of death metal and grindcore and. Was published by Relapse and the CD was put out by Relapse, so a lot of the bands on it were from Relapse. So it seemed like a slightly skewed look at the history, but there was a lot of the classics. Like the first ten, the well, the first like fifteen songs were all pretty good, and then towards the end, once it got to like the modern era, it was all just a bunch of Relapse bands who were, yeah, not not really deserving. But it had Repulsion on it. It had Carcass. It had At the Gates. It had Death. It had napalm death and pig destroyer and siege which was a cool deep cut and um carcass's heartwork was on there which was sort of one of their last really death y songs uh post necroticism and that's the title track from their album heartwork which came after necroticism and it was really cool and i remember reading Like, I would hear a lot about Carcass in high school, like, on the internet and everything, and people would talk about, oh, man, they use, like, they would just, like, read from medical textbooks to just, like, come up with nonsense lyrics of all this, you know, pathology and all this stuff, and I didn't really know what any of that meant, and that all seemed so goofy and alien to me. I asked my mom to buy me some of their CDs for my birthday when I was 15 or 16, and I wound up with uh, Heartwork and Symphonies of Sickness. And I actually got the Symphonies of Sickness one that they had just done a new reissue that had the original gory quote-unquote artwork on it. And then was confused and excited and all the rest. And I really wanted to get their first album, uh, but had no luck. And I wasn't even aware of Necroticism for a long time. And I sort of always thought of as being this more melodic death metal oriented band. Although... At the time, they sounded way harder than like what Inflame sounded like, and I sort of went backwards with Carcass. It was a whole thing, and it took me many years to sort of listen to all of their stuff and develop an understanding of what each album was about and where they've gone and everything else, and I told a long story in the last episode about how I got into Necroticism. I'm not going to rehash that, at least now. Just
1: copy and paste from the last episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good episode. Check it out. I mean, we we spent, I spent like 20 minutes talking about how great Symphonies of Sickness and Necroticism are, and I'm going to try to avoid that to a point tonight. So, that being said, the three original members, well, that's not even really true, but the three primary members of Carcass, the Carcass that we all know and love and enshrine in our minds, are Jeff Walker, who handles bass, vocals, and lyrics, ken owen who handles drums vocals and lyrics although vocals and lyrics eventually not so much uh and bill steer who plays guitar and does vocals and lyrics and again gives up the vocals and lyrics later on in the band's history but for the purposes of what we'll be covering tonight primarily those three all have those roles and all members do vocals all members contribute lyrics up till necroticism and uh they basically all help shape the songs in some way or another. Uh, Jeff Walker was born March 25th, 1969 in Wendell, St. Helens, Northwest England. Uh, his band prior to Carcass was a band called Electro Hippies, who I have never heard. But Cool they though. Yeah, they're like, I think they're like a sort of hardcore, grindcore band, but uh, I'm not entirely sure since I've not heard them. Uh, Ken Owen is was born april 23rd 1970 in billing lancashire england and bill steer was born december 3rd 1979 stockton Tees, england and bill steer was also in napalm death from 1987 to 1989 which is basically the greatest years ever for napalm death that's when he recorded the second side of the album scum which is sort of like the basically the first proper grindcore album of all time and you know sort of top 10 most influential albums of extreme music ever that's not like noise and industrial he was also on from enslavement to obliteration and they're split with uh the awesome japanese grindcore band sob which is like sons of bastards or i forget but they fucking rule and then the other person that we'll mention, and I'll get more into him later, is Michael Lamott, who was the second guitar player that was added in post-recording of Symphonies of Sickness. He was originally in Carnage from 1988 to 1990, which was a short-lived Swedish death metal band. They were the third band to record an album at Sun- Sunlight, Sun- Sunshine Studios. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to fuck this up. But that's where Entombed recorded The Left Hand Path and Tiamat recorded right their album, and is the studio that's responsible for, like, just turning all the DoD pedals up to 11, and then, like, just having that buzzsaw guitar sound. Every band that went through that studio after that, they all just sounded like... <laughs> like just, you know, that. Uh, their their album, Dark Recollections, was recorded there, and he later went on to form Arch Enemy after he left Carcass in 1993, and uh, Arch Enemy was one of the m- most successful second wave melod death metal melodic death metal bands uh and they're still going strong to this day uh, hooray yeah jeff walker Ken and bill steer are in other bands down the road but because none of that shit's going to apply to today other than the ones i already discussed we'll save that for next episode so carcass was first formed as a school band by bill steer and ken owen that soon after disbanded Bill Steer then joined the D-beat band Attack with drummer Midi, Paul on bass, and Peck on vocals. So basically, allegedly, uh, Bill and Ken, who were schoolmates, uh, started Carcass and then, like, didn't really do anything. It was, it was basically like you know you're sitting in class, be like, you want to be in a band? you want to call a Carcass? All right, cool. You're going to my
1: house and fuck, you're just drawing the name on your notebook. Exactly, exactly. You're the best man ever.
0: Yeah, so. Then uh, Bill like joined a proper band, a D beat band. So uh, my friend and I described my friend, my old roommate Chris. If you're listening, what's up? What's up, <laughs> what's dog? What's up, uh, up, dude? What's we call D beats the M-Tats, because it's like mts, like you know, if you know what like if you if you're listening to an episode about Carcass, you probably know what a D beat is. But anyways, if you don't, just listen to Discharge or any D-beat band. It's like a particular drum pattern that basically sped up turns into a blast yeah, beat.
1: No, it's like there were drums in the room. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I call them the umtats because it cracks me up. and I'm there. Coffins does a lot of D-beat stuff that's just like... Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Just like, oh, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> so, it's kind of jolly. Yeah. I'm not... Oh, and the other thing, full disclaimer, I am not going to go into... The history of death metal, the history of grindcore, an explanation of like metal stuff. Not because you should know it, but I would expect most people to know it. I don't want to waste their time. The thing I hate more is uh, reviews or histories of shit where like they act like the person reading it wouldn't have any idea and if you don't like go check that stuff out there's tons of good stuff on YouTube or like a million different resources to learn the history of those things
1: and if you do want <laughs> us to do that send money orders to Podcast at gmail.com yeah make
0: them out to uh, Chicago All Saints Hospital you can just use uh, acronym C-A-S-H and uh, make your checks payable to that and then uh, mail them on to our P.O. Box 666 Motown Motown Calgary <laughs> <laughs> After releasing a four-track demo entitled A Bomb Drops in 1986, the bass player left the band and was replaced by Jeff Walker, left this band as attacked. Vocalist Andrew Packcham changed his name to Sanjeev after a visit to India, and then he basically left the band. so they talk a lot about this in the documentary, uh, The Pathologist Report, uh, where not a lot, they talk about it briefly, but basically the name Sanjeev gets brought up and everybody's like, oh, fuck that guy, like, this whole thing, and they're like, why does everybody always want to talk about some fucking dude who, like, you know, just has nothing to do with the his Because his name is
1: Sanjeev.
0: Yeah, so he's a, he was an Indian dude, and he went to India, and he came back, and he, I, I don't know, got naturalized or nativized or whatever. Got way more Indian? Yeah, and so they were saying, like, he was a lot older than everybody and basically quickly lost interest in, like, carcass once they made it into like, turned Disattack into Carcass, and, uh, like, they none of them could even remember his original name, and were just like, whatever, like, you know, why are we talking about this? So, that's about all the time I'm going to give that. I'm going to repeat some of the roles that the guys have in the band, partially just because I know for myself, you can read, like, at least for me, I read names of band members and all that stuff, and it just goes in one ear and out the other. So the easiest sort of way to remember them, if you ever see pictures of carcass, like old promo shots, Jeff Walker has dreadlocks. They'll steer.
1: There's a steering wheel.
0: Yeah. With, the... with horns. With horns, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, he's got the uh, long straight hair, and Ken Owen has the shorter hair. Oh. So Jeff Walker's white with dreadlocks. And it's interesting because Jeff, Jeff talks about he basically came from a more anarcho, hardcore punk crust whatever grindcore, sort of a background and was more politically informed a little bit whereas bill and uh ken were much more like straight metal heads and but despite that and sort of oddly uh it wound up being that bill Steer joined Napalm Death, who were like the seminal and big deal. They were like the big metal band in England at the time as far as like super extreme metal goes because they were kind of pushing the envelope and then like immediately got recognition for sort of their extremity as far as speed and everything else went. And so he joined up with Napalm Death and I sort of kind of went over the uh, already what he was doing as far as he was on the second side of the scum and... Actually, interestingly enough, Jeff Walker designed the cover art for Scum. So, sort of Carcass was all kind of enmeshed in that early era, and those dudes they were friendly with the guys from Napalm Death, and um, like you know, had some studio time and just like show time and whatever, and and like played shows with them, played some shows with Bolt Thrower a little bit later, and you know, we're doing a lot of this. Was I mean, it was a sweet time as far as late '80s. Uh, britain had some good heavy metal going on and this is all 86 87 uh basically and we're about to hit um and i apologize if this timeline's a little muddy because it's all kind of jumps around in the way that they sort of talk about it and i'm going to try to keep it interesting but generally chronological um so once they they disattack fell apart they changed their name officially back to, or changed it to Carcass, although, like I said, Ken Owen and Bill Steer had been doing that a little bit already, had tried to do that. Uh, Bill Steer created this logo that looks like a very classic 80s metal logo. Jeff Walker apparently saw it like once before he even recorded with them was like, I'm not using that shit. And <laughs> came with There's a no new There's no fucking way. Yeah, it came with a new logo. So this is the, uh, the original Carcass logo, which I'll post to the Instagram. So, anyways, Jeff Walker redesigns. The logo before they even, I think before he even does a single rehearsal with them. So the band does, now this is where it starts to get a little unclear for me, but their first demo is called Flesh Ripping Sonic Torment. They still do this with Sanjeev on vocals and uh, they record it April 4th, 1987, or at least it was released then. I tried to get exact dates on this stuff, but I mean, nobody really remembers. It's a demo tape. You know what I mean? And uh, they recorded the the demo, and they played a few gigs with Sanjeev after or around that time, and then nothing really happened. Some of those songs went on to be reworked into songs for Reek of Putrefaction, but otherwise, nothing really came of it. I don't think that demo... I don't think it's ever been released, but I say that and I'm I'm probably dead wrong. And one of the big bucks since they probably put it out, so... Uh, So one of the things they talked about was that the band rehearsed at Bill Steer's house and Bill and Ken were close, both his friends and lived generally geographically near one another. So it was easy for them to get over to Bill's house and record in the basement of his parents' house. Uh, it was not easy for Jeff Walker to get there. It took him, like, an hour to two hours. He had to take buses and trains and hike and walk and all the rest. And uh,
1: Ride a unicycle, steal a horse.
0: Exactly. So they were saying, like, basically, Bill Steer was saying in the interview, you know, his parents were never encouraging or discouraging. They just sort of let him do his thing. And he was kind of, he and Jeff were both a year older than Ken and just sort of already, like, not not going to go to uni, not going to do anything kind of really much else. Like, they were just at the leading to high school and just sort of having fun and, and focused on that stuff. And um, he tells a story about how, like, the neighbors would constantly come over and complain and be like, turn that stuff down. And Bill's dad was, like, super non-confrontational, so he'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, like, the guy would leave, and then he just, like, wouldn't say anything to Bill <laughs> and the band and all that. Oh, yeah,
1: I'll totally take care of that for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: so they and, they... and they were at, like, I think... It seems like, again, there's not a specific date given, but they were there through I think Symphonies of Sickness and didn't really get a proper rehearsal space until after their second album and went to a proper studio and started recording uh, or uh, practicing there in preparation for the recording of the third album. The band is referred to as being from Liverpool, but that's not true. None of them ever lived in Liverpool, (laughs) or at least not during the formation of the band, and They've never been from Liverpool. They're basically like all from the suburbs. So they're like a suburban band and
1: Yeah, but Liverpool sounds cooler.
0: Yeah, exactly. So like that's why you know, it's the it's the closest metropolitan area, so that's why people reference it and say like they're a band from Liverpool. If you look on Metal Archives, it lists their origin is Liverpool, which is not not accurate, but you know, whatever. So So basically from here they, they you know, they're rehearsing, they're doing the thing and They're starting to develop the songs more and there's this focus on sort of, it's not even body horror, it's just like kind of, I'd say it's like classic gore, like morbid gore death lyrics, but this was before any of these tropes were like really super established. I mean, there were bands, uh, death and morbid angel and some of the other, uh, bands that started as like extreme thrash bands and became like the first death metal bands and other stuff like that who were had these gorier focuses and even thrash metal bands from like the early and mid 80s that had murder death focus but there was almost like a fantasy element and the sort of difference with carcass especially from even their first demo but especially reek of putrefaction is is this like heightened focus on making like using medical sounding terms and stuff to make gross statements that also sound kind of like scientific and whatever and uh all that kind of thing and they ken owen the drummer was writing lyrics i think before anybody else was and just sort of like spitballing different stuff and they definitely did use medical textbooks, they which they also would use for the collage art that adorns the first two albums, um, to get sort of ideas and words and all the rest. But basically, they 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 all had a lot of fun just like writing. These. It sounded cool. Yeah, right. Exactly. And Jeff Walker talks about like you know at first from for him he was coming from this more like politically oriented music, and. He didn't even want to do vocals at all, and eventually, of course, became their their lead vocalist. But he was already the vocalist in Electro Hippies. He was like, "I don't want to do this." And then he sort of like saw the fun of it and was like, "Yeah, well, it's like kind of fantastical in one sense." Like he was like, "You could have like this really dark sense of humor with it," and he was like, "I started to get into it." So, uh, they basically sold Earache Records the idea of uh, them as a band and doing an album while they were. It sounds like while they were engineering and tracking uh, Napalm Death Scum, so Bill Steer was in the studio with Digby Pearson, who's the founder of Eerie Records, and he had heard the original demo they did with Sanjeev and like wasn't too hot on it. But Bill Steer was like talking to him while they were doing this. And, oh, no, Sanjeev's gone. Like we, we we got like new songs. It's like a whole thing now. No, like, Sanjeev? No, we got rid of that Yeah, that fucker's gone. <laughs> and uh, you know we're 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 crushing it. Like we're super ready. And it's crazy because it's like all things, you know, the, these things that become institutions, like they, they had somewhat humble beginnings. And Carcass is the first, the fourth band to release an album on Earache, which is now sort of like one of the top tier metal albums, or I'm sorry, metal labels as far as extreme metal goes. Like I think always it's sort of Earache and then I guess like I guess relapse, if that's even fair to say. And then I don't even know, like maybe century media or I don't know, like metal Blade. And it's
1: funny, the more you, the more you mention, the more disgusted the look on your face is getting. Yeah, there's
0: like, there's for my taste, I guess nuclear blast is one of the other big ones. Like there, I'm not any of the big metal labels that were so influential and important and big in the early days. Like they've all osmos, I guess is another one. They've all, for my taste, like, so hugely lost their way that I just see them as, like, ancient relics, like, holding up old shitty bands that have totally sold out. So it's hard to imagine, like, this label at its infancy when they were willing to sign Carcass, who, like, barely even had a demo and basically just bullshitted their way into getting a sort of, you know, deal to do an album for them. Uh, based well, I'm on sure a, it,
1: well, a couple of them already had experience with the label, right? So.
0: Well, yeah, so I mean, Jeff Walker like had done the cover art for Scum and Bill Steer was on the record and they knew Digby, but you know, and they, like, everything it's who you know for sure, and yeah. he's, he's a new label, so he just wants bands to probably like, you know, start filling out the roster and all that. They weren't inexperienced, but they were. Like, they these, so this is all 87, 86, 87, so they're like 18, 19. I and mean, these are young kids, you know, Yeah. although most of the greatest death metal bands were all started by like teenagers, you know, and most of the times like their best first couple albums are always like those youthful figuring it out things where it's like a bunch of fucking dudes in Sweden in 1989, just like stumbled upon like the perfect sound, then set the stage for like the whole rest of the world forever after. And like, they were just like fucking idiot kids. Like it's amazing in that way. So they sold uh, Digby and Earache on the idea of doing an album and they prepared Reek of Putrefaction in 1988 for Earache, which was released as Mosh 6 slash, as a joke, Mush 6 uh, as far as the catalog number goes because the sound was so fucking gross and awful and just such a disaster that they called it Mush instead of Mosh. Mush
1: is a good band name.
0: Yeah, but so reek of putrefaction is 22 songs 30 minutes long there's 11 songs per side it was released on cassette cd lp it's been re-released numerous times um it was recorded in two days at rich rich bitch studios recorded live and engineered by mike ivory it was a complete fucking disaster so (laughs) i have i have that it was recorded either in two or four days Originally, and then they had to go back in and re-record a bunch of stuff because basically, Mike Ivory didn't really give a shit, didn't understand what they were doing, and even though Rich Bitch had recorded a bunch of... a few other metal albums, like, they just did not get it. And in retrospect, all the dudes from Carcass are basically like, we had no idea what we were doing, or we had little idea of what we were doing, and we were not properly rehearsed, our songs were not very tight, and... We were given a free reign to sort of do whatever and that did, was not good for us and we needed like a lot of help and basically they, they recorded it live and they recorded it poorly so that it sounds like really blown out. The drums are way too loud. The guitars are way too quiet. The solo is just like squiggling and out. The the vocals are all mush. It's It's one of those things that like it's very hard to listen to now because it has... A ton of history and context and the story and everything in the metal scene uh, has a lot of meaning to it. But um, I'm—they said for them, like when they when they got back the original master tape, which was apparently done on a Betamax tape, too. Jesus yeah, Christ! Uh, well, which actually sounds pretty cool. Like, I mean, I guess if you had a master Betamax tape, it could be because it's thicker tape, but somehow higher quality. I don't know enough about magnetics and tapes and shit. But that sounded pretty wild, and uh, when they got it back, they were like, "What the fuck happened?" And so, like, they they spent a lot of time themselves re-recording, reproducing, and working with Paul Talbot to sort of salvage it. Um, lyrics for the album were contributed equally by all the members. Uh, vocals are pretty equal. There's a lot of like the affected pitch-shifted vocals from Ken Owen that I fucking worship, and uh, it's just like. It's a giant mess, and I, I never heard that album until three months ago. So, you know, I don't have a long-standing history with it, but it's like I know, it's like I practiced, I felt like I didn't even have to hear it to because I'd heard so much about it, and it was pretty much exactly what I would have thought. But it was it, already in your heart. Yeah, but the, the crazy thing is there's still, like, some pretty good, like, they know how to write some pretty interesting, memorable riffs, and that shows up even in their infancy, you know? uh 1988 they were uh 19 19 and 18 at this point by the time they're recording and releasing it so i mentioned before jeff walker prepared the collages for this album and for symphonies of sickness the reek of putrefaction one is definitely the slightly crazier of the two and they talk about how they would go into bookstores and basically just like sneak in and cut pictures out of the medical textbooks to use and just like sneak right back out the bookstore And, like, Bill Steer's like, oh, no, I wasn't the one who did that. He was like, Jeff is definitely the one who did it. And Jeff's like, definitely it was you. And, you know, yada, yada. And they're like, I don't remember it like that.
1: Could you imagine being a med student and going to pay, like, $600 for a medical school book? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it like they did it actually less from bookstores and more from libraries, but basically same idea. And so Jeff Walker prepared these collages, which they used. And both this album and Symphonies of Sickness... Went through a phase where they had. There was a censored sleeve that was all black that, like, blocked the image and just had the info on the front that said, like, this is Carcass's album, which is generally a pretty good tactic to sell something because then, especially for the kind of people that are buying this shit, like, they want to buy it because they're not supposed to see it, you know? And then eventually they just redesigned the sleeves completely to look fucking horrible and look like this, like, late 90s pseudo computer graphics, pseudo like basically like a shitty textbook of like you know like a textbook cover where it's like this teals and whites and like a human anatomy yeah. <laughs> like you know it's very it was very goofy and then they eventually brought back human the, anatomy
1: 101 yeah
0: exactly exactly then they brought back the gore sleeves so i'm not gonna it's hard for me to talk about the technical aspects of any of this music because i am not a musician I make noise, but I am not a musician. <laughs> and I don't know anything about fucking tuning or guitars or octaves or anything like that. They talk about in the documentary that they played in drop B and stayed tuned in drop B and like had a good sound from that. And they were sort of taking credit for being... Uh, the drop B in, band? Yeah, influential in that way. Like They were like, there are other bands that have done it, but we were like the first band to like make it good. And I guess that sounds possible so <laughs> uh, but we believe you carcass. we yeah. believe you so it, the album itself was really poorly received it like basically all the metal magazines were like this is trash it sounds like trash this is for trash people and you're trash if you like it <laughs> and uh, but the big deal was that John Peel who you know who John Peel is right mm-hmm. so he was a famous DJ on Radio 1 and he was from that uh, Northwest area in england basically like larger geographical area and he had already played um so he would invite bands to come record sessions which he would then play live on air and well they would be like pseudo live like he'd basically play those performances after the fact on air for people to hear and gave tons of like up-and-coming bands especially from that area of england their first shot and like gave them national exposure which was a big deal and he was a huge supporter of like confrontational and wild and experimental music and he'd already done that for the electro hippies jeff walker's first band and then he did it um well this album came out and he named it the album of the year and the observer which is like a national magazine and played the shit out of it on radio one and it's like reek of putrefaction like it was just nuts and like the band talks about they were basically like it felt like he was really just trying to piss off the squares to a point, yeah. and like you know, we did not like the album as much as he did, kind of a thing. But it was a big deal for them, and it's still like it's still a big deal when you talk about the history of Carcass, like the fact that John Peel cained it so hard.
1: He's the guy who who directed Get Out, right?
0: You're kidding, right?
1: Yes, I'm fucking kidding. It was a joke. It's Jordan Peel. God. <laughs> can't even get a giggle out of you jesus
0: yeah i just it sounded so retarded i thought maybe you were telling the truth so
1: I'm pretty sure you know what <laughs> please continue
0: <laughs> so yeah uh the last little bit of trivia i'm gonna get into and then i'm gonna talk again more generally about carcass and sort of where they were going from here and 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 some things before we get into more of the album specific stuff uh Eric HQ was raided sometime around the time, I guess it was after Reek of Putrefaction had come out. Rated? Yeah, by Vice Squad. Cool. Yeah, because, so John Zorn is a famous musician who did a bunch of like avant jazz stuff. So he's in Painkiller, Naked City, his own band. And under one of those names that, I was trying to find this album art, but I couldn't find it on Discogs, but maybe I just didn't look hard enough. They were talking about he had released an album around the same time they thought it was the one called guts of a virgin where it had like a beheaded japanese woman who's like was cut open i think it was like a unit 731 picture and like they're like a fetus removed from her kind of a thing and so this is just slow please continue this
1: is slowly getting better and better the more it comes yeah out of your mouth. so
0: like it people saw it and got extremely upset and offended and like you know how puritanical uh england is they had the video nasties and all that stuff this is oh oh you mean
1: you mean the the country that's trying to outlaw most hentai and lolly and enforcing stricter rules on uh, but did you know age verification yeah and did you know that
0: did you know that a porn company in the states is finding a way to make money from that by like creating some kind of i only half read the article because i was trying to do other stuff and
1: uh, masturbate yeah
0: and uh but apparently it's going to be a whole uh what do they call it the old hoopla the old hoopla the old turnaround on on gb but um yeah anyway so they read hq to take this album and confiscate all the copies and
1: that's crazy yeah
0: right so i mean you know, as far as obscenity, it's one of those most difficult things to just like to decide as per a matter of law what obscenity is because, you know, what's obscene to one person might not be obscene to another. Like there are restrictions on things that could harm people like pornography with minors because it's harmful to minors who can't consent, but saying like this art is too obscene to be considered art or is too obscene to not have a negative social effect, and therefore we ban it. It's a whole... Yeah. I can't
1: believe they were allowed to go in and confiscate.
0: Yeah, dude, your vice. Well, they were like... Yeah. They probably said, oh, well, they're doing... The, they actually have guts of a real virgin, or whatever. But anyway... There's real virgins with real guts Yeah, here. so they came in, and they just took, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of this John Zorn album, and uh, along with it, they took a bunch of copies of U- Reek of Putrefaction and took some uh, much-beloved Alice Cooper poster, and... That was like a big deal, especially this Alice Cooper poster, apparently, from uh, Earache HQ. And then eventually everything got dropped, ex- but the John Zorn stuff I don't think ever got returned. And then it sounds like they did get their copies back of Reek of Putrefaction.
1: That's insane. Yeah.
0: So before I get more into the straight history of um, <clears throat> sort of where they went next as far as recording and all the rest. So Carcass, it's interesting. You watch old interviews. I watched a couple... Interviews they did on Headbangers Ball and some other like short interviews from from the late '80s, early '90s, and they're they're especially Jeff Walker. Like he he's kind of a he's very sarcastic and sardonic. He's kind of a dick, <laughs> and uh, Bill Steer is much more uh, chill. And the one thing to, to note that's I'll get into it more in the next episode, but Ken Owen had like a massive brain hemorrhage in the nineties and it was after they had broken up after swan song. And so his, it's really cool to see him in old interviews when he's, it's not that he's not himself now, but like he, he wound up with a bunch of complications from the brain hemorrhage, which is already like a super serious thing to have happen. And uh, you know, is a lot, He still has a lot of the same wit, but is much slower in talking and sort of listening and processing and everything like that. So, um, so when, when they were in their heyday, they, they, they're pretty snide it to put it politely. And when they're asked about how they're classified as far as genre or like what, how they see themselves, like they, (laughs) they're pretty dickish about it. So, the thing i didn't say about reek of putrefaction because i wanted to sort of save it for this was that it is considered like the quintessential original gore grind album and that's that is a term that has developed in the years after its released and really like decade after and sort of became a way to describe other bands of that sound and that style and sort of what makes it gore grind is the imagery is gore the lyrics are gory uh, and gore oriented, and has like this sort of pseudo medical aspect to it, right? And it sounds like fucking shit. And there's <laughs> a lot of sloppy performances and pitch shifted vocals. And they weren't the first death metal band to use pitch pitch shifted vocals or like metal band, but they really that was like a big part of the first album. And all of those things basically are what define every gore grind band since. And there are really good gore grind bands, but there are also a fair, like the vast majority of them are just basically copying Reek of Putrefaction and making it shittier and less good. And like any seminal album, there's, you know, that kind of thing happens. And nobody in the day called it gore grind. Like that wasn't a genre. And it's just a retroactively applied descriptor to that album. And... When even at the time when people said, oh, they're a grindcore band, they were like, no, we're not. We're like a death metal band, if we're even death metal. And uh, that's not untrue. It's, it's interesting because even in my own way, like as a sort of way to mentally organize the stuff I listen to, like I think of grindcore. I think of politically oriented, blast beat oriented, rapid fire type music. So, yeah. So, OK, first... If you guys hear it, it you may hear the rain in the background. This is not a soundproof studio, so I'm to fucking tell you.
1: Just think is, think of it as soft white noise to fall asleep to our slick, sultry voices. Yeah, to.
0: we're like the salamanders for your ears, and the water's like water. So. For your ears. Yeah, for your ears. Like.
1: For earmanders. Yeah.
0: Um. So yeah. So anyways, grindcore to me is is Napalm Death, Grindcore, is Nasum, Grinecore's Discordance Axis, like, and I don't think of, like, generally a ton of solos or anything like that, it's sort of, it's a mixture of imagery and blastiness and sort of a focus on those two things, and there are a lot of bands that actually have solos and dynamics and all the rest, but even when you listen to Reek of Putrefaction what shines through on close listening is there is very much like a death metal influence more than i feel like most grindcore bands at the time even though everything wasn't as codified as it is now and there's it's way more of a melting pot and not like a clear blueprint other than for what is gore grind which already sort of mixes in more death metal and it's not "quote unquote" death grinder, anything like that. It's just it's just its own like extremely fast, extremely sloppy version of death metal, basically. And their next album, which we'll talk about shortly, "Symphonies of Sickness," is uh, way closer to straight death metal, even though it's never really straight death metal. So yeah, so you know. Like I said, they get they when they're asked if they're a death metal band, they they literally say, it's in the documentary and in this old interview, they're like, if we're if all the other bands that are making death metal now are death metal, then we're not death metal. We're something different. Like we're better than that and we're way cool. And they weren't wrong, but it was also like, I'm like, oh man, like gee whiz, like, you know. But it but the thing that I think makes Carcass interesting and unique and a big deal is that even Like, none of their albums sound like any of the other albums in that genre from that year, that time, whatever. Necroticism is more technical and more progressive than most death metal that was coming out that was strictly death metal in 1991. And 70s of Sickness sounds way more spooky and still gore-influenced and, like, those pitch-shifted vocals and it's way less blasty than any other death metal from 1989 basically for the most part and as far as half grind half death metal half whatever bullshit of reek of putrefaction like there was no other equivalent album of that time so in that way they do you know they they have their imitators and more from reek of putrefaction than anything else well except for i guess artwork but they stand alone and I, I can appreciate that. And I think that their sort of arrogance is well-earned in that right. way. Uh, so, like, I already mentioned... Okay, well, first of all, they after they did Recomputer Faction, so they were playing live shows. They played in Europe some. They played in the UK mostly. They played with the aforementioned Bolt Thrower. They played with Napalm Death. They played with, uh, you know, other sort of more local bands and some of the bigger... Metal bands, but those were some of the names that stuck out to me. I didn't really find any information about specific shows or dates at this point, um, but it is important to note that Bill Steer was still a Napalm Death at this point and he was looking to kind of get out, and Michael Lamott, who's half Swedish, half English had come over from sweden and was trying to join napalm death who were like as far as bands to pick they were the front runner for like being the next big thing right and so he was super excited because he got along well with bill steer and was like oh i can't wait to be second guitars with you in napalm death and bill steer was actually like dude i'm about to <laughs> piece out of this shit i I'll got things to do yeah because you know you figure like it's uh, the band either to be in a band that's already established or be in the band you co-created and like one of pursue is your personal creative vehicle i totally get it and so the band produced a demo for earache called symphonies of sickness which basically demoed a handful of songs from that album uh it was later re-released on some of the reissues of symphony of sickness down the line i haven't heard the demo versions myself but essentially they're just like slightly less good raw -er sounding versions of the same songs there's nothing they never did like exclusive tracks um they did the demo they got another deal with earache to put it out but they weren't signed for a multi-album contract at this point they were basically just like all still young having fun
1: work for hire
0: yeah recording full-time and i think at this point in 89 ken owen was in college where the rest of them had just like after high school just worked and played heavy metal so next came the first peel sessions And as I previously mentioned, John Peel was really hot to trot for a week of putrefaction. And from this interest, he invited them to do appeal sessions uh, in 1988. So they recorded it on December 13th, 1988. It was broadcast January 2nd, 1989. So just a few less than a month later. um, All the band members took on pseudonyms K. Grumle Gargler, which was Ken Owen, uh, J awful Mangler, which awful was Mangler. Jeff, yeah, like awful, like O F F A L, which is, I think it's like a butcher shop term, like awful's like the gross bits, like it, it's a, I'm sure it has the same etymology as the word awful itself, but, and W G Thorax Embalmer, which was Bill Steer, so. Uh, as soon as the session was played on air, John Peel purportedly said, is it too soon to nominate this, the session of the year? And literally it's the second day of 1989. And he's already saying like, this is the greatest shit ever. He was super hyped on them and they kind of felt like they, you know, part of it was he got a big kick again out of like helping out people that were sort of from his geographical area in England and also like pushing music that was extreme and confrontational and awful. Uh, They played four songs that all went on to be, or no, I take that back. I think it's two songs from Symphonies of Sickness and then uh, two tracks from Reek of Putrefaction. The session itself was later released as a 12-inch on Strange Fruit slash Dutch East India, which was the label that many of these Peel sessions were released on, and that was released about a year after it was recorded on December 2nd, 1989. These Peel sessions and John Peel support sort of garnered the band attention and interest from people outside the normal metal channels because at this point they were still being uh, pretty much like ridiculed and looked down upon by the mainstream metal press, which was like these bunch of fucking lunatics who just make gross shit to be gross and like have no musical talent and you know all the sort of stuff that plagues people that do this kind of awesome genre pushing stuff. So, from there, they went into, uh, after doing the demo for Symphonies of Sickness and doing the Peel Sessions, they did the actual um, album, Symphonies of Sickness, which I reviewed last episode. It's 10 songs, it's 43 minutes. It either came out in November or December. I saw it, conflicting dates, but it was either November or December 4th, 1989. It was Earache Records, mo- uh, catalog number Mosh18. And recorded at Slaughterhouse Studios from July to August 1989 by Colin Richardson, who went on to become their producer, primary producer-engineer the whole nine yards from that point forward. He was involved in their most recent comeback album, Surgical Steel, but he was not the last producer on it. They actually had a couple of producers on that. But they basically formed a lifelong partnership, and he was a house engineer at Slaughterhouse Studios who had recorded... Discharge and Sisters of Mercy which are like a DB band and Sisters of Mercy is sort of even though they hated the term one of the most famous goth rock bands of all time and had done sort of a big range of like hardcore punk to a lot of gothy stuff to some pop things but Colin Richardson himself was really into like really extreme metal and like genre uh, boundary pushing stuff and so they lucked out huge with him because even though he wasn't Head of that studio, as far as what I'm understanding, he was he like immediately took a shine to what they were doing, and they sort of went in and they said like you know their intention was basically reek of putrefaction round two, like we're gonna just sort of bang this out and get on our way and whatever. And he was like, oh no 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 no, like I'm gonna help you make this an incredible album. And so he really like forced them to do take after take after take and isolate stuff and really improve their performances. And Bill Steer was always trying to do that um anyways as a guitar player and as as was jeff walker and not to say ken owen wasn't but apparently like more than anybody he spent a lot of time with ken sort of improving his drumming and i i don't have confirmation they don't talk about this in the documentary but i swear i read this in old interviews or reviews it's my understanding that for the first two albums ken owen used a single bass Drum pedal, right? And for this type of music, like most of the time, people have double bass yeah. pedals because you can go faster and all the rest. And especially when you listen to Seventies, The Sickness, I'm ninety-nine percent sure I'm right on that. Like it's insane. He he does some. He's not like the fastest drummer ever, but he's well-rounded and he gets like a hell of a performance out of a single bass pedal, which I just think is sick.
1: Who'd win in a fist fight, him and Neil Pert?
0: I would assume. Well, I mean, not now. Ken Owens had a brain aneurysm. I think he'd be avoiding that whole thing. Is Neil Pert dead? No, I don't but think so. does Neil
1: Pert only have one arm?
0: Yeah, but still, that's that <laughs> seems like that kind of uh, it might rest- be a fair fight. Didn't we read about some kind of Japanese dude who was really into like crippled wrestling?
1: That that was <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, so so they you know again they went in just thinking like we're going to just kind of get this done and it turned into a much bigger thing and they had they've had a role in all of the production of all their albums but in this one they had a big role and they really worked hand in hand with colin richardson to turn it into something incredible um pre-recording was so before they went in to record the album they talk about this was still like a very collaborative effort like was. Uh, Jeff Walker was taking over lyric writing duty and he's got, he's got like a little bit more on the edge of vocals doing like more vocal work here than on the last one, but there's still a lot of stuff from Ken and a lot of stuff from, uh, Bill. Um, so but there
1: were all, all of them were still pretty involved in the vocals at this point. Yeah. And,
0: and mostly pretty involved in the lyrics, although Jeff was taking over it. and they all sort of helped one another write their parts. So the big thing that I got out of, um, the issue of decibel i read and in the interviews was they talk about how especially bill and ken ken would write or it wouldn't even write he would basically just like do weird shit with an acoustic guitar like just come up with like these crazy sounding riffs and and motifs and whatever he would record them all to cassette and then he would send them to bill steer who would then try to turn them into actual riffs and he was like yeah like ken's a drummer and he's not a trained guitarist and so he plays shit that like yeah you can play once but like you couldn't play it multiple times in a song it'd be way too complicated he was like but most of the really weird really evil like exceptionally bizarre shit came from ken basically like he would send me some stuff and then i would turn it into like something we could use for a song that's super cool yeah and was like you know they really they they gelled in that way and then you know basically uh bill would say to ken like okay but like here's what you need to you should consider doing with the drumming because like you want me to play all this shit you need to play drums that can like match it and and so they were all sort of like involved in the songwriting still uh they allegedly they invited invited michael Lamott, who we talked about a little bit ago uh to join for this album and recording process and he was like I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'm still not on board. Like, I think I'm going to do this whole Napalm Death thing, and like, we're I'm just like not really stoked on it. And he was like, because he was not a fan particularly of the first album. He's like, you guys kind of sound like shit, and like, I'm not like really super into that. He got along really well with Bill Steer, but like, was just kind of didn't want to
1: be a part of the band.
0: Yeah, just wasn't wasn't there yet. Um, but they they developed their songs. They wrote longer songs. Um, they talked about there was uh, I don't think it was Grind Crusher, but there was some compilation they did uh right before this with the song exhume to consume which is the second song on the album they did like a rough version for that comp and they said like that was the turning point for the band where we were like you know even though they were still coming at it pretty slapdash they're like this is going to be a better album this is going to be like our proper first album re putrefaction faction was too fast too soon we were too young and too sloppy like here we're going to make our mark and they did and they didn't like it still did not get incredible reviews. It sounded a lot better. And that was an immediate like uptick for most people, but it was, it's still like a fucking outlier and it is a weird sounding album. I don't have a ton of sales information, but so I didn't get to do this. I'm going to step back for a sec. So for reek of putrefaction, I wanted to mention, um, Chart positions and sales for the limited data I have. This stuff is pulled from Wikipedia, but actually has primary sources to back it up. So, Reek of Putrefaction debuted, debuted in, or peaked at, in the UK, 196 and 200 in USA and 99 in Sweden. I would assume that's probably not on, like, the top 40 pop charts, but on wherever they place metal. I don't follow this shit because I don't fucking care, but... The metal charts? I guess, or, like, whatever alternative... Um, the sales in the US, I would imagine this is of all time, is nineteen thousand five hundred and seventy plus copies. And then they have the Finnish sales figure for whatever reason of thirty-three thousand copies. And so there's a, Fins. Yeah, right. And there's a surprising amount of Gore grind bands from Finland for a country that's so small, but that doesn't shock me that I guess for whatever reason they had like sick distribution <laughs> in Finland of, of their first album. Seventies of sickness, uh they sold 27,700 plus copies in the U S and 73,600 copies in the UK. And it topped out in Finland there at 73 on the charts, Sweden at 72 USA at 157 and the UK at 81. So again, this album was released on all formats. It still has the same kind of collage album artwork as the first album, but it's a little bit more toned down. It's, it's still sort of, like, how I always think. When I think Carcass, I think of this album cover. It's all just, like, fucking pieces of meat and bones and, like, skinned pig Viscera. faces. And, yeah, exactly. It's not... Compared to the gore grind shit you see now, like, which is just so fucking gross, like, it's it feels pretty tasteful, all things considered. But I'm sure at the time people were like, what kind of horrible... And it's all, all like, oranges and reds and just, like, really, like...
1: Goopy and drippy. Not
0: not not as goopy as you'd think. But, Let's uh, see,
1: I, I think we looked at the album last bdmft episode yeah
0: i probably pulled it up so so this is 1989 which was a pretty happening year so between 1989 and 1990 uh this stuff all sort of falls so bill steer and jeff walker started a i guess what was probably technically a vanity label it was a pseudo subdivision of era called necrosis records they only did four releases Uh, The first one being Electro Hippie's release called Play Faster Die, which I think is the last release from the band. That was 1989. And then in 1990, they did uh, Repulsion's Horrified on CD and LP, Carnage's Dark Recollections on LP, and then Cadaver's Hallucinating Anxiety. So you can already see the ties with Michael Amott at this point. I think he had probably joined by the time the carnage's dark recollections came out but that was their first album the one i mentioned was at sunlight yeah. studios and all that stuff uh repulsion is sort of a oft forgotten extremely influential grindcore band that were from detroit who basically did one album i want to say they broke up before it ever was officially released and uh it's a mixture of death metal and grindcore in like the days before grindcore had a clear definition and is way more like gore focused in a sort of like classic it's got like a rotten zombie face kind of cover and all that type of shit and it has like a real like motor city vibe running through it and was one of those like again i didn't hear for years i didn't pick it up until 2013 and it's totally fucking rad it's just like it's kind of like what the misfits i always thought the misfits would sound like (laughs) i'm not a i'm not a big misfits fan but this sounds like it was actually made by Misfits. Just so,
1: so our listeners know, uh, Dick Fetty has the Misfits band logo tattooed on both of his knees. <laughs> so every time he gets down on his knees to pray to the big dick god of metal, the, Misfi- the Misfits can hear him.
0: Yeah, I guess. You don't I think, have to guess. That's are, the way it is. Are you talking about Glenn Danzig? Yeah. See the god of metal? I'm pretty sure he's short and has a small dick. Like, I love Danzig as as Danzig Danzig. And he's,
1: like, that buff fat.
0: Yeah, well, he used to just be buff, but then he got buff fat. Yeah. But when you watch the video for Mother, you're like, mm, That's a hunk of man. Yep. That's a hunkin' heap of love. Uh, we're getting a little off-base here, brother.
1: I, I'm sorry. You suck dick and you have misfit tattoos.
0: That's true. So, on top of that, they were on the British sci-fi comedy show called red dwarf which i've never seen but it's it's, great okay so it's been recommended to me for years uh the it was supposed to be napalm death was supposed to be on the show but then they bailed so they asked uh carcass to be on it which is sort of
1: i remember that episode
0: yeah so they play uh what is it smeg in the heads in the episode um Oh, shit, I don't have the name here, but it's one where I think they go back in time and like Adolf Hitler's in it and some yep. other shit. It aired originally in December twelfth, nineteen eighty nine, and so they've got that claim to fame. That's like one of those trivia things that I see pop up in any anytime like Carcass is mentioned. It's like, oh, their new album. Also, they were on Red Dwarf, and I'm like, oh, okay.
1: Red Dwarf is a great show.
0: Okay, sure, but I don't know how that's super important, but they, they talk a lot in the interview about how, like, they always got sloppy seconds for shit. Like, nobody really cared about them at this point, so it was... But they knew a lot of the right people, and so they wound up with some cool things, and they could have given a shit, and I think Jeff Walker was like, I've never even seen it. They were,
1: like, six degrees of separation away from being on a fucking Doctor Who episode. Yeah. What like, was
0: this? Uh, 1989. and. Yep. And it's funny too, because they talked about like Jeff Walker was like, yeah, I saw the guy who either like, I think it was the writer, like one of the people who's big time involved with Red Dwarf, like after the fact at some other show and was like, oh yeah, it was cool when I was on the show. And he was like, who the fuck are you? Don't talk to me. <laughs> and he was like, thanks. So, uh, like I mentioned, Michael Lamott, so I'm going to, I've covered a lot of this, but so he joined, I guess on like a sort of pseudo temporary basis, uh, Following the release of Symphonies of Sickness, we're not even necessarily the release, but I think the recording, because the album was released at the end of the year, so sometime like mid to late 1989, he joins Carcass and doesn't join Napalm Death and just goes with Phil Steer, who leaves Napalm Death too at this point, and joins as like a part-time live guitarist, like a second guitarist to like have a beefier live sound. And so he talks about, like, so Michael Amott's like, super famous, and if you're into melodic death metal, he's, like, one of the heroes of that genre. He's that boy. Yeah, and he's got, like, the long hair, although it's red, which is unusual, and he's, like, a sick guitar player. There's no question. I'm not a big Arch Enemy fan, but the boy's got chops. But he talks about how he was, like, calling his girlfriend while they were on tour, like, I don't know that I can do this. He's like, because the fucking riffs that these dudes wrote were, like, just way too complicated and, like, not in, like, a... Progressive, super-technical death metal way, but just, like, complicated because they're written by their fucking drummer and yeah. shit. And he's like, what the fuck is this stuff? So he had to learn all the songs from Symphonies of Sickness and Reek of Putrefaction, and it was just, like, a big fucking nightmare for him and a ton of stress. But they wound up touring all over Europe, and they... If I can... Remember, I was trying to find this part in the video where they talk about it, but I think that they were touring with an Entombed and... Uh, I don't think it was. I think it was Bolt Thrower on part of the tour, but basically they were going around Europe. Tour. Yeah, right. And they they were playing a lot of small venues. They they told this one story where they played Italy in some like anarcho squat, and by the end of the second song michael Lamott's like i look up and i'm the only person on stage and like everybody's screaming and spitting at me so he's like i eventually like trying to hit people away with my guitar and they take my guitar and they smash it and he's like that's my only guitar like you know i'm (laughs) i'm 18 years old or i'm 19 years old and like they just took my only guitar so i wound up grabbing jeff's bass and like i smashed some dude in the head a bunch of times and then i just like book it and i'm hiding behind some pillar waiting for them to come and like all this crazy shit. then eventually we had to still, like, go gather all of our stuff up from the squat and, like, think it new shit because we were on tour, and it was all, like, smashed up and all this insanity. And uh, basically they just, like, started touring, 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 and Ken Owen was supposed to be in college. It, like, starts in the summer, and then he's supposed to go back, and before he's supposed to start up again, they get an offer to tour the United States in support of death, who are, like... Were and still are one of like the most legendary death metal bands of all time, yeah. and Entombed couldn't do it, so they got sloppy seconds, and they were like, "Well, we basically have to do this." And Kim was like, "I should go back and go back to my studies." And they were like, "Oh, come on! Like, let's do this fucking thing full time." And so he decides, "Okay, fine." And they go over, and it was set up, I believe, by the dude from Relativity who did some of the official licensing for Earache titles in the U.S. before Earache kid U.S. distribution, which didn't happen until. I want to say like the late 90s and more like the mid 2000s.
1: I do have a question. Do sure. you know what
0: he was in school for? I don't. I can try to get an answer by next week. I know that I know he's got a couple different degrees. I believe he finished that degree and he's gone back post his health issues for other stuff. I think like basically I think he went back for like an electronics music degree after the injury but may have been in in school for like proper music theory or something like that but i'll I'll have to double check on that so yeah so they get offered this tour in the usa it's set up by the dude from relativity they basically give them this rv that's designed for like four people for cross country and they all jump in there and they've got this bouncer slash tour bus driver slash merch guy who's like some huge italian dude i think out of new york like you know, classic big scary guy. And they're all, like, still kids. Hey, yo, I'm
1: fucking Giuseppe. Yeah, right. Like, he here to sell you shit, protect your shit, drive your shit. Yeah,
0: apparently not so much protect their shit or sell shit. He just, like, kept stealing. Like, he, they, they talked about, he had like, a, he was very concerned about how much money they were making from merch and, like, how he needed to hold on to that. And basically they got ripped off. No or, one said Giuseppe was good at his job. Yeah, well, he was too good, maybe. And, uh, you know, and then again, they're all, like, 1920. And they, they talk about... So watch this documentary just because it's interesting to always hear the people tell the stories themselves, but they have sick footage from when they're in the U S and they were talking about how they would have like a slide projector that would just be set up to show gross medical images and shit. And like at the start of the shows they'd have like Jeff would run over and like start it and then try to run back so they could start and like sync up with it and all this kind of stuff. But to their surprise, especially in la and florida and new york and like the big cities like the the venues they wound up playing were like way bigger than what they were used to these sort of more pub show almost kind of things in the uk and they had a ton of fucking fans even though they had no official distribution or releases in the u.s they had t-shirts and whatever else but like people were mad fucking stoked to see carcass in the u.s and like they toured so early in their career and they wound up touring like twice in the US, pretty rapid succession, that they built up a huge fan base here. And um, <coughs> they've always sort of kept that. And they just like, they, they said like to them, being from Europe and especially being from the UK, it was like touring the US was like when you had made it. And here they were touring with Death and it was like, fuck dude, like we, we've made this and we only have two albums out in like the, I don't even yeah, I guess 70s of Sickness was already out at this point, but had minimal distribution in the U.S., and, like, they were already a big deal, and... But they also said, like, it was fucking hellish, because they were just across the country in this fucking RV, just, like, bored, or not bored, but miserable, and just... And they also were talking about how, like, the crazy fans in the U.S. are 100 times crazier than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, and also, we do
1: everything better here.
0: Well, and also because we have guns, and they're like, That's also fucking true. terrifying, and, uh... They were talking about, like, specifically the one of the anecdotes I remember was they said that once or twice they, they had whole gigs canceled because uh, Chuck Schnolder or Schna- Schna- Schneidler or whatever, I don't give a fuck about death, but the main dude from death was really a big record collector already, and, like, they would just, like, go to a different city to go to some record store he wanted to go to instead of, like, showing up to play the gig wherever they were <laughs> supposed to. <clears throat> But yeah, they did this long tour and then they came back. They actually had a little bit of money and um, were able to use that money to get studio time and start recording in advance of recording their third album, Necroticism to Scanting the Insalubrious. Now, I didn't find mention of this in anything I read or listened to or watched, but they did do a an EP that was released... In 89, around uh, the 15th of November, called St. George's Hall, Bradford, um, oh no, I'm sorry, it was released in June 1990, the recording was from uh, the 15th of November 1989 in the UK, it was a 7-inch EP, it was three songs released on Distorted Harmony Records from Mexico. Uh, there was an officially sanctioned release of a thousand copies that Bill Steer said was okay, and then there's it's been bootlegged a shitload of times since. <laughs> I think it's like a semi-flexi-disc recording, so it's probably one of those ones where to find a copy that doesn't sound like total fucking dickhole uh, is extremely difficult, and it's yeah. quite the collector's item. But it's like three songs; it's not even a full set, so who gives a shit? Uh, they did another Peel Sessions after everything else in um the end of 1990 so it was recorded on the 2nd of december and then broadcast on the 16th two weeks later and it had in uh i believe it was two songs from symphonies of sickness and then demo versions of songs from necroticism and pretty much after this they said like john Peel kind of lost interest as they got more musical and more refined and everything else and this peel session was done with michael lamont And so, this brings us to the heavy hitter, in many ways, of the episode, which is their third album, 1991's Necroticism, Descanting the Insalubrious. It was released October 30th, 1991, it has eight songs, it's 48 minutes long, and it was the first time that Michael Amott was in the studio with them and was involved in both the writing process and the recording process. And one of the first things we will get out of the way, I've heard different versions of the story, but essentially, it's my understanding that Michael Lamott was involved in, as far as writing, he was definitely involved, like was gets co-wri- co-writer credits on three different songs. But as far as the actual recording for the album, it's my understanding Bill Steer basically did like 90% of the guitar tracking because they did like an insane amount of overdubbing of guitar tracking. So like some songs would have like eight simultaneous guitar tracks on them and he basically did all the solos even the ones that michael Amott's credited for uh, just because i don't know there's like a sort of control freak issue or just a timing issue or whatever it was but basically michael Amott gets more credit than like what he really did and i don't think it was lack of desire on his part but just like the way it worked out right i don't have a primary source on that but like i've read that and heard versions of that story many many times and this was sort of the height of well not sort of this was absolutely the height of carcass as a band that was doing increasingly detailed complex compositions and taking their music into something you know that was bizarre and grim and 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 of a language uniquely their own with songs and and imagery and everything else that like just really gave a complete and very detailed intricate package um their big focus like they they talked very briefly about how they were trying like to use shredding as far as a compositional tool and Michael and bill steer were like in this constant sense of healthy competition trying to become better guitar players and they're like, once we were able to, like, shred really fast, they're like, we didn't even want to do it anymore. We wanted to, like, do something new and do something better. And Ken Owen, I think, is still contributing riffs to this album, but, like, maybe a little bit less so and focusing more on his drumming. And they really just, like, focus on the fact that they now have two guitars in the studio. But it's never just, like, two guitars. It's, like, other than the solo parts, there's, like, so many guitars. Um, An
1: army of guitars. A guitar me.
0: Yeah, but you really—I like that. Katami's good. Um, you really get like a fully fleshed-out sound that has so many parts. This is the one that I've shown you many songs from over the years. Yes, and it's—it's it's like it's catchy, it's complicated, it's bizarre. You know, almost every song on the album starts with a sample. Most of them have these sort of pathology-themed things. They're like true crimey and whatever. And the the lyrics are. Fucking complex and long and and still full of medical shit, still full of pathology shit. Very intense. Very intense stuff. But they also have, like, a real sense of humor. I mean, what the one yeah. song, Corporeal Jigsaw uh, Quandary, is about, like, cutting people up and then making, like, a jigsaw out of, like, all these cut-up parts of people.
1: It, it's, it's pieces. It's yeah. the plot to pieces.
0: Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's Incarnated Solvent Abuse, which is, like, uh, basically melting people down to huff their bone glue to get high. Can you do that? I don't know, but I'm willing to try. There's a song about turning people into dog food, and then there's all the rest of it. And, yeah, like, it's just, like, it's... There's definitely, like, the the sort of humor and sardonicism comes up even more than ever, and, like, this will become a prominent thing for the next three albums, uh jeff walker also takes over he does all of the lyric writing or at least that's how it's credited and does like 90 percent of the vocals on this album which is a total bummer jeff walker has the rasp bill steer has the like deeper growl and ken owen does all of the pitch shifted vocals which do not appear here at all and uh that's a bummer he's still credited as having additional vocals but you don't hear it. It's not like unruptured in Perlence, where he gets a like headlining, you know, sort of role in the vocal department, um, and it, it's the refinement of carcass that like will then become increasingly like and much more drastically refined following this period. Collard Richardson is like absolutely at the helm at this point. He's doing production. He's doing mixing. Uh, They've got other engineers, Keith Hartley, Ian McFarlane, uh, David Buckman, John Paul, were all involved. Um, Carcass basically did the artwork themselves. It's a really weird cover. It's four large pictures of the band members in like wrapped in plastic and some other stuff. And it's all sort of, it almost looks like stitched together. It's on a table. And then I believe it's Jeff Walker hitting it with a hammer and there's like, surgical instruments around him and then there's like blood on it and it it almost looks like a bad sort of photoshop job but it was all done by just staging and then i think a little bit of like literal physical film development post-production stuff they there's a hand coming out of a trash can they had to have like a guy like laying on the floor with his (laughs) hand sticking out the you know so it was all it comes (laughs) out weird i think it's partially the way it's framed yeah but it's it's pretty cool and once you see the videos from this album then it makes sense because the images I think are taken or at least if they weren't taken from the videos then they inspired the imagery in the videos It feels like a
1: disjointed nightmare.
0: Yeah. Stats for this bad boy, 67,000 copies sold in the US. Woo! At least debuted in US Best Spot thus far 129, UK Best No, that's I took that back. It did less well than Symphonies of Sickness debuted or peaked um, rather at 109. Uh, Finland it did well 69, and Sweden <laughs> 63. Yeah. Oh, so the band did their first two music videos for this album. First, they did Corporal uh, Corporal Jigsaw Quandary, and then second, they did Incarnated Solvent Abuse. Uh, as videos directed by howard garfield and steve mallett respectively the videos are not particularly interesting they're kind of cheesy they're sort of classic like they feel very much like 1991 1992 uh and at a time when headbangers ball was culturally relevant and it was pre-internet and all the rest like you know even if they're not mind-blowing videos it was still cool and all that i mean they're As far as heavy metal videos go, they're not cringe inducing and they're not mind blowing, but they're pretty, they get the job done. They're fun. Yeah, they're fun. And uh, yeah, this, I mean, this album is, as I said it before, it's one of my favorite all time death metal albums. It's like literally this, Tombs, Left Hand Path and Realm of Chaos by Bolt Thrower. Each of those albums stand alone for a bunch of different reasons and... Of all of them, this is probably my favorite. I mean, I would even probably put it on a top 10 best albums of all time list for myself at this point. It's really incredible. I think I'm going to call it here because I still have Tools of the Trade, which is the same, essentially, era as this album. But I kind of want to start the next one on a high note, and I don't know that I'm willing to call Heartwork that high note. I think Tools of the Trade is a better sort of segue from where we left off to where we're going to get to. But, yeah, that's that's essentially the first half of Carcass, uh, as far as both time and their discography.
1: It's the upper torso, if you will.
0: Yeah. So, I worship everything from this era, although I can't pretend to say I'm an extremely long-term fan, especially of Reek of Putrefaction, which I've only just heard recently. But you are hard-pressed to go wrong each one of these albums is extremely influential in their own right they're very good uh you know objectively as well as for their place in history and yeah they fucking rule like I I have to say researching this subject I was afraid I was gonna like them less and less and less and I sort of was pushed back a little in the beginning by how dickish they can be in their interviews. But then the more you hear and the sort of more context you get, the more I was like, I can appreciate these dudes and their whole thing. Very
1: cool, man. All right, so join us next week on Greasy Grimy Gopher Guts Part 2, The Story of Carcass. As always, you can find us on the Facebooks, at Motel Hell Podcast. The can, Gram. The Gram Motel Hell Podcast. The Gmail. The Gmail Motel Hell Podcast.
0: Just look for Motel Hell Podcast. Yeah. We'll be there. We've got a Skype channel, a Discord channel, and we now do uh what's the thing, coffee. We will do like a, it's like sort of a Patreon but for porno and it's basically pictures of me with varyingly varying sizes of hemorrhoids. Yeah, it's pretty good. I went this, this weekend I went Good. yeah i don't know <laughs> pretty man. glued i went camping this past weekend and i got a hemorrhoid that didn't have fleek get stuck it didn't clot but it was the size of two knuckles i'd say like it really like i basically had my insides out and so i got a picture of that so for the first one to hit that first tier on coffee we will send pictures of that hemorrhoid for you
1: we will send it to you yeah for free if you buy coffee
0: yeah which is like 50 bucks yeah
1: also subscribe to crunchyroll for
0: only six dollars a month please somebody sponsor us somebody help uh yeah well and if you can you know more than anything rate and review us on itunes or give us a like on that soundcloud repost re-listen, re reabsorb into the ether work of knowledge all things all right
1: Later, nerds. Later.